Grapple fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something, the podcast that when it was created said, nah, we don't need to bother what, talking about what happened in wrestling this week. No way will that come back to bite us in the arse. <laughs> oh, God. But it is our most up-to-speed part of the podcast. It's the Meltzer Five Star Project, an ongoing project in which, we, let me tell you something, co-hosts myself, Lorcan Mullen, and Simon Cross discuss a match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated five stars or higher. As we have said in our previous episode, because of the semi-unintentional hiatus we took in August, we have a bit of a backlog to go through, all centred so far around one aerial assassin, Commonwealth kingpin, the dyslexic one, Will Ospreay. (laughs) Simon, we discussed his block match with Shingo Takagi. He lost that bout, but he's found himself at a later stage of the G1 Climax anyway. What match are we talking about today? We're talking about the G1 Final itself, where Will Ospreay takes on his former stablemate, the Rainmaker himself. Prior to this match, three-time G1 winner, compared to Will Ospreay's big, fat zero wins, Kazuchika Okada. This is uh, not the first time these two have wrestled a match to get five stars by Dave Meltzer, or a higher rating by Dave Meltzer. I forget what he gave it, but he did give a rating of at least five stars to their previous singles match, which was the Wrestle Kingdom main event on January the 5th of this year, which was one of the matches I feel like I was harshest to, despite its high quality, I think I've ever been in one of these podcasts, in one of these episodes. Why do you think that was? I think maybe because I was sort of fed up of what was getting five stars all the time. Like the number of New Japan matches we were still getting that were five stars at a time where it was so obvious that New Japan couldn't even be at its peak with their restrictions on what fan interactions could do and what have you. And they're outright cursed. Good luck. Yeah. Well, it's not good luck if it's cursed. That bad luck, you know. Sorry, apologies. At times, I've had problems with Meltzer's lionising of Will Ospreay in particular, but Kazuchika Okada also, because whilst I do enjoy both men, at times I can be frustrated by Okada more like he has his formula and he sticks to it. Osprey, I don't know. I mean, I just I, there are times when I feel. I mean, everyone's. You know, it's been the point of discussion how many five star matches he's already had, how much merch he shifted in the mm. eyes of um, Kevin Nash. I don't like to get involved in those sort of arguments, but I will say that Will Ospreay definitely shifted a lot more than either Oz or Vinny Vegas. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> but let's not get into that. I was going to say, I, I, I think you're you're deliberately zoning in on a specific part of Kevin Nash there. But my point is just, there are flaws in, in that argument. If you want to claim who's the superior whatever 
in whatever field you want to judge <sighs> it by. But I'm not going to get into that. We can talk about that at another point. Yeah, we are entering the realm of wrestler dick measuring, which, uh, as we know right now, is um, <laughs> is very lively. And... Yes. I've never seen livelier dick measuring contests since I last visited your mum's house. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? The fact you didn't give it that that your all makes it actually that much more insulting. <laughs> if I'm going to insult someone's parents, I need to go full force with the vitriol, as we've heard earlier in this week. So, um... <laughs> oh, so many illusions. I know, I so, know. So, getting back to my original point, I therefore wasn't going into this with the highest of hopes, the highest of expectations, and I guess pleasantly surprised is the best way to put it, insofar as, for me, this feels like the best match that Osprey and Okada have had, in my opinion, so far. Okay. And it gives me hopes that they can go even further in the future. Because what I found fascinating about this story is that yet again it looks like New Japan are doing this thing of um, people having to work their way up to get to Okada's level. And the, the, the ongoing theme seemingly of New Japan storytelling being that there are no shortcuts. Yeah. Because Osprey is no longer anything close to a heel in cheat like it was only for a very brief period of time really that the united empire were cheaters yeah that i guess they reserved that for the bullet club you know even more specifically the house of torture part of the bullet club as well wow when it goes yeah. like over the top and instead it seems like osprey's going down the lines of more like naito i suppose and so he's almost a tragic figure throughout this match it's so odd that ostensibly the heel of this match is the fighting from underneath underdog throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And Okada is the face, but also like the Apollo Creed of the match. Apollo Creed is not the face in Rocky One for a reason. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird because like at, at the start of the match, you're right, that fighting from underneath comes through quite quite quickly when Okada basically ensures Will will need a lifetime supply of Neurofen with those double DDTs to the floor. Because Osprey is coming into this as we'd already seen from the Takagi match he's already starting to get taped up and he's sore and he's struggling. He ends his block 4-2 everyone else tied up like if he hadn't beaten Juice Robinson in that final match literally everyone in the block from Osprey to Yajiro Takahashi would have been on 3-3 and it was only by him beating Juice Robinson meaning that he was the one to finish 4-2 and that means Juice Robinson's the only one to finish 2-4 that gets him through to the block to the semis whereas Okada only loses once to Jonah and in this whole block of giants where you think you could make a whole storyline about him being battered and bruised and yeah. knocked around the place, instead dispatched all of them, except for Jonah, which you assume they're going to try and pay off with him being the challenger of the number one contender briefcase, because, you know. Is it a spoiler to say Okada wins, really, in New Japan? 
No, <laughs> <Ever>. no. <laughs> Didn't Okada come out and say that he's not going to bother with that nonsense of defending the uh, G1? That's good that he gets to make these decisions, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm fairly sure he did come out and say that afterwards. It's like, well, no, I've won the G1. I keep the prize. The prize is Wrestle Kingdom. I'm going to Wrestle Kingdom. I'm not defending this. I ain't that dumbass coach Ribushi. Yeah. <laughs> Look how hard he made it for himself. Well, the previous year, he just turned his briefcase into a belt. He really yeah. just, the rules don't apply to Okada. But it's funny because, obviously, throughout this whole 50th year, the whole point has been to present Okada as the modern-day Inoki, right down to what he wears to the ring. And it's it's an it's a fun comparison because the, the comparison's always been that Osprey is of the same mould as Kazuchika Okada, of freakish athletic abilities, also very similar heights, very, well, he's a bit shorter, but very similar frames, that sense of being able to physically do it all, being agile, being able to execute these moves with a precision that no one else can match, you know, you can pair the the accuracy all the time and, and the beauty of Okada's drop kicks and compare that to, say, Osprey's round kicks, which are always so perfectly timed and, and hit. It's, it's a thing of beauty. That These two are just maybe the two most... I think that the story is that these are the two most physically gifted wrestlers in in wrestling right now. Yeah. And that's where my issues has been before, because I do think that is true. But I also think that that makes both of them not necessarily as thorough in their thought process of, of bringing in emotional and, and psychological layers into their storytelling so that they therefore become the canvas on which other wrestlers paint their greatest paintings that's what i always okay that's what i said that's why i love more the matches okada's having with naito omega and tanahashi yeah the ones he's having with osprey because i feel like those three wrestlers have more in-ring intelligence than osprey does where osprey it's still more of the spectacle you know, it's that whole Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels dichotomy. Yeah, although... In the, in the, it's obviously, both people can do... Like, Bret Hart can do great moves, but there's more... But I think it's more about the thought, whereas Shawn Michaels will put more into the spectacle than necessarily the, the, the thought behind it. There's They're both great at it, and I do think Osprey has improved in leaps and bounds with the character work. This was the first time where I felt like he told the story without it necessarily being over the top in the performance aspect to it. Like, I remember being a bit critical again of how over the top I felt he was, like, when he was the underdog babyface against Marty Skrull, and it was all about how messed up his neck was, or whatever it was in, in that match that we talked about before. Yeah. Like, it's almost Triple H, Shawn Michaels, their most <laughs> hammy, you know, Adam Cole, Johnny Gargano, Tommaso Ciampa, NXT main eventy sort of emoting in the ring yeah whereas i'd much rather my naito my guerrero my bret hart my tanahashi rooted in character and thought process yeah related specifically to that match i do i do think you're right about uh osprey developing maybe he's he's leaving the sean side and, and eventually will end up at the brett side the more his career progresses because he is still very very young for a wrestler he's not very very young is he about to turn 30 or has he turned 30? 
And also, given what he's put his body through, it does not it would not surprise me if we we're in the second half of his career, not the first half. Yeah. Thing is, though, now now I'm seeing like Edge and Christian wrestle in in the last week. Are at the ages they are. Like, what what is time? What is time really? So those are my initial thoughts. I think this is my favorite of the Okada Osprey matches, even though it does it, it seems bizarre to me that in theory it's the heel. There's the underdog trying to wheel themselves back into the match and the virtuous face of the company hero that is essentially the favourite going in. And But that's always been Okada, to be fair. It's always been the case that he is the physically dominant person and he always, sometimes through his arrogance, lets his opponent in. Yeah. And then it becomes a struggle and eventually just almost, you know, in 85% of the matches, it's Okada's innate... Both physical gifts, but also will to win, that push him to come out victorious. And and again, like so much of Okada is, seems to be him trying to push other people to be his challenger. As I've said, like there's never been any bitterness behind Osprey turning on Okada compared to like Gado turning on Okada. Yeah, like he almost accepts it as part of the process for Osprey. I'll be fascinated if and when they create the Okada to his Tanahashi and how Okada's character reacts to that. Yeah. Where it's finally not even necessarily the opponent that's undoing him. It's it's time. It's age. Yeah. Maybe he'll go like dye his hair red and get the balloons back out. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he'll turn it green and that's a whole new version of Okada. Or, or blue rinse it, like old ladies in 90s Coronation Street. <laughs> Maybe. You never know. You never know. You mentioned shortcuts earlier on, Ron, and how you can't take them to, to beat Okada. You've, you've got to perfect your own game to do it. Now, Will doesn't cheat in this match, but he does sort of go... Well, he does go for a, short, a shortcut or two, in a sense that he borrows moves from other people who have defeated Okada. Well, that's going right into the end of the match, so can we hold off on that for a bit? Yeah, sure, sure. So we can say more about the dynamics again. I also liked, with the introductions, because they, they were both in robes, again, so that makes great for mirror images, and the choice of the styles of their robes are so fascinating as well, because Osprey's is ostentatious, there's like peacocking feathers... It's like the last remnants of when he tried to turn his heel character into a, a 2020s version of Ric Flair. Do you remember that yeah. when he cut the promo and he was in like a suit with a, with glasses and throwing his diamond watches into the crowd and everything? He sort of yeah. ditched that element. But but he's kept the uh, Armani towels and, or whatever it is that he carries with him and the, and the robe. You can take the boy out of Essex, but you can't take the Essex out of the boy. <laughs> Whereas Okada is dressed in essentially Inoki cosplay. You know, he'd always have robes, but they were also similar to Osprey in their ostentatious. Whilst they weren't ostentatious in their in feathers, in plumage, they were in colours and yeah. specifically the gold imagery. Whereas this is him very much going with the traditions of wearing the, the robe of that Inoki's style would wear and it's very pared down for Okada, isn't it? Well, I wonder if it's him entering sent- mid- mid-30s sensible. <laughs> <laughs> sensible fashions. This is his brown slacks. Because he still looks fantastic. His physique is... 
it's never like a bad physique, but there are diff- there are moments when it's a little bit tight, a little bit leaner. There's like you know, instead of it being ten percent body fat, he brings himself down to eight percent body fat yeah. or, or whatever, and he's a bit more tanned than usual, and the hairs. Obviously not going through the red phase. It's nice and quaffed. <laughs> you know, it's still blonde. Gold, I suppose, would be more appropriate colour for it. He does. This is not the 23-year-old punk arrogant Okada. This is the man who's going to take on every responsibility of being the torchbearer of New Japan. Not bothering with, like, a mouthpiece or anything. And not even being, like, cocky arrogant. Just kind of... he don't, Like, he doesn't do the classic... Uh, push them into the ropes and then tap them slap them on the chest and bring him back in he he goes straight in and forearms him in the face yeah i mean that was a great moment because like the commentators did play it off of always oh, taking osprey seriously and stuff like that and then obviously then you follow that up with those two like big ddt's early doors and it does seem like he is just like there's not much left of you at this point like it's your dregs that have got here. You're just tape and prayer. And he sells strikes to the back like he's coming, like he's frozen in place. Like yeah. he's worried at any moment he's not going to be able to keep moving. Until he takes Okada out to the outside and then hits a sky twister press. And I, I thought that move was reminiscent of how oftentimes Tanahashi, when he needs to hit something big, when he's in trouble, especially mm. if he's in the early stages with okada he'll often when they're on the outside hit his high fly flow move from the top to the outside yeah and he does go into control for a while and again as has been osprey's methodology it's slower much slower to the point that he's almost showing off he's almost making a point of how slow it is it's almost like a mm-hmm. randy orton-esque he even grabs a rear chin lock at one point <laughs> but then turns it into a cravat which i thought was an interesting move of his but okada seemed seemingly i almost missed like the, the point that it happened because i thought okay well now osprey's in control and maybe this will go more down towards him doing something to eventually make okada the underdog like say when Tawei hit the Don Don on the apron to the outside yeah. to find the dynamics of the match with Misawa going on after that. I thought maybe that's kind of what this Sky Twister press is and maybe at some point a part of Okada's body will get really badly hurt because Osprey, I can't recall any time where he's been about the limb work like a Tanahashi or a Naito. No. I suppose maybe because he doesn't really have the submission games to go with it. So it still has to be him just using his power and his speed and and his skill rather than any targeted strategy, which I guess is, again, just my preferred type of wrestling, I suppose. Even with it's weird because like Okada's added the money clip to his repertoire, but because it's like a neck crank stroke choke, it uh, he hasn't really got a lot of different moves added apart from just the money clip because a lot of his offense attacks the neck like the tombstone and stuff perhaps if osprey did have a limb based submission maybe that comes later i don't know that's another layer he can add on at some point yeah another part of the whole not being able to take shortcuts to ultimate success reminds me as well because i think i did predict osprey to win this year but i think i will be fairly confident that he's going to win it next year because it reminds me a lot of Ibushi's journey. 
And in many ways, this is the story similar to the one that Ibushi had in the first G1 Climax final, where he lost to Tanahashi, where the whole theme of that tournament was being a survivor yeah. and finding something inside of you, that wherewithal. And oh, Ibushi not quite having it, but Tanahashi having it, like Tanahashi going forward whenever there's strike attacks. And this is maybe the first time that o- Osprey has ever truly felt prolonged damage and felt like he's going through the physical toil of what it takes to truly be the top guy as a heavyweight. Yeah, yeah. And so he'll come out of this battle scarred, but he's learned a lesson that he will then take on to the next G1, maybe. Because I wouldn't be surprised if it's because it was like the Naito Okada storyline or, or whatever. Um, that also had like a two year period where it took him that long to get to the final mm. promised land. And Ibushi, it took multiple Wrestle Kingdoms to reach his final point. So I wouldn't be surprised if if he's still in New Japan. Yeah. Come January 4th, 2024, maybe that will be his ultimate crowning moment where he wins the big one in the big stage without interference. And so I guess de facto turns babyface in the process, I don't know. In the same way that Los Ingobernables gradually just became baby faces, and how yeah. Kenny Omega gradually became a baby face in his procession to the top. Although, you know, whether he truly remained a baby face after that during his title reigns debatable. You know, but that's uh, that was for previous episodes. I'd, I would like to see him eventually become like the big dog in Japan. It does seem like it was his. I don't think he ever could become the big dog. Because Okada will always be there whilst he's there, I would have thought. And they will ultimately rather go with native talent that's trained. Yeah, there is their, that. In their school. Stranger things have happened. And yeah, you're right. It could be 1A, couldn't he? Yeah, he could be like Naito is to Okada. Or... Yeah. Okada, it's curious with Japan. They, that, that need for that ace and for them to be homegrown from the Inoki. So it goes, it basically went Inoki, Fujinami, Hashimoto, Nagata, probably. It's a bit more up in the air with those because it could be as much Tenzan as it was Nagata if they hadn't completely screwed Tenzan over in booking. Uh, then Tanahashi, then Okada. Yeah, And, you know, they're all greats from around that time. Obviously, some people would think it's crazy that I'm not saying Kijimuto or, or Masahiro Chono, but there's a specific role that the native top guy has. And it was, again, like you say, it's like if Hashimoto was the ace, it was like ace 1A with Muto and Chono as 1B and 1C. Yeah. And that's more, and to external audiences, I think it will always be seen as Muto and Chono more than Hashimoto. And maybe to a lot of foreign audiences, Kenny Omega and, and Naito was always the ones that we preferred over Okada, but there's a mm. reason within Japan. Or, or maybe, because a lot of people have always seems to be that Kabashi and Kawada were always more beloved, again, outside of Japan than, than Masawa. But again, with Japanese culture, so much of it is supposed to be about projecting stoicism and, and almost not being that emotive. Although that has changed over time. Like I said, it's curious that Okada... Is almost becoming more and more with not within himself, but more, but more and more. I don't know if stoic, but just embracing that role more and and being less flashy and cocky. I'd say it's more assured. I guess because with age, it doesn't look as good with age. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, yeah, and I think it is just like becoming older and wiser. But that it, it's him giving his slant on what that is. Mm. Yeah, it's an updated version of what an ace is in 2022. Yeah, because again, so much of it is about him willing people to become better. You know, I've said like his whole storyline series with Sonada is all about him trying to make Sonada good enough to beat to to be yeah. worthy of him because he never thinks he truly is. Like Okada literally taunts Osprey to get on his feet at, at one point, and they go into exchanges of blows, and o- Osprey does win one of them to Okada's surprise. It's it's a great match. I will say this: this is this. I mean, uh, do you agree with me that this is the best of the ones they've had? Yeah, I think it. T- I think it's told the best story so far of the matches they've had. Mm, yeah, I, I do think you're right about the Wrestle Kingdom match. I think it was just a little bit like. Uh, when it shouldn't have been. I think there was just a little bit of of, of a je ne sais quoi or something like that missing from it. Like, the X-Factor just wasn't there. Yeah. I'm not saying it was fully present in this match, but it was more present. I guess it's because it has so many of those standard things of these main events, but there was unique aspects to it, and there was progression in the character, as because we, we're getting to the end. And it is you classic... Everyone hits their big moves and they surprise each other with variants of it. Or, you know, Osprey surprises him with an Oscar from a different way. The, the two key moments, I think, as you were saying, for Osprey, they were saying that, oh, he studied every match where Okada's lost. And so he starts doing the moves of the people who beat Okada. What, yeah. what are the moves that he does? So he does the high fly flow, he does the Styles Clash, he hits the V trigger. And then the crowd loses their minds as he tries for the one wing angel. Even what makes that even more striking is the ring positioning because it's the exact same ring position, pose, and recreation as when Omega beat Okada at the end of their Dominion two out of three falls match. Yeah. The seven star match. That was what they were going for there. Yeah. Uh, I also, sorry, I forgot there was a phenomenal forearm earlier in the match as well. Well, that's just Pip Pip Cheerio, isn't it? Yeah, but it was defi- de- deliberately called a phenomenal forearm by the commentary. That might be just because they forgot that it, he stopped. It was called Pip Pip Cheerio. The phenomenal forearm wasn't a significant move by Jay Styles' arsenal until he went to WWE and they switched the Styles Clash for the phenomenal forearm as his finisher, which I didn't think was a bad idea. Actually, I think it's worked. This served him very well, and. The other significant, I don't know if you even noticed it, the way that Okada surprised Osprey, because he surprised him with the Michinoku driver, I think it was, in the previous match. That's like his surprise move that no one had seen him do before yeah. until, I think, that Wrestle Kingdom match. And so it's another thing to his arsenal. But the other thing that he does in this match is he hits the Inziguri. That's like his surprise instead of that. And that is famously one of Antonio Inoki's trademark moves. Ah, so that's what he's doing with that. Yes, yes, layered, love it, love it. Mm-hmm. But again, like uh, towards the end, Okada like nods approvingly when they're both seated, and they go into the strike exchange, which again is such a cliche. But again, because they added an element to it of this is the sign actually that Osprey is coming up to the moment is reaching yeah. a moment that Okada... So it's almost like, weirdly like an approving father in a strange <laughs> way. 
Beat me, son. Beat me. Take my place. <laughs> I guess so. Strike him down and you'll become more powerful than ever. Yeah, there's Obi-Wan Darth vibes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, just the, the classic things. Oh, yeah, the, the hidden blade gets turned into a spinning emerald flotion. That's another thing that Okada will often do. To put some extra stank on a movie is when he spins around with it. Like, often yeah. it'll be a spinning tombstone. That sets him up for the Rainmaker. And I, I thought it was significant because Osprey does kick out the Rainmaker. And I think, I might be wrong, but I think this is the first time anyone's kicked out of the Rainmaker since Okada went through that period of stop using the Rainmaker, bringing yeah. back the money clip, and then bringing back the Rainmaker to beat Osprey at the Wrestle Kingdom before the previous Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah where it was just a singles match. There was no title on the line. And that's enough. So so Osprey's the first one to kick out of Rainmaker, not version two, but, you know, whatever. You know, re- Rainmaker classic. Rainmaker. Yeah. Yes, I suppose. Yes. The, the, the money clip is very much the new Coke of wrestling moves. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Having said all this, I'm not sure if I'm quite five stars. It's four and three quarters at a minimum, though. I'm going to go with my gut and say yes, five stars. Uh, Gato needs to think about how he books these G1s. Okada is now... He's 33 years old. No, he's 34 years old, sorry. About to turn 35. And he has now won four G1 climaxes. And he's won them four over a ten-year period. And I think the problem is that I think it was his first G1 that started this tradition of the G1 winner doing the equivalent of winning the Royal Rumble and getting a guaranteed title shot at Wrestle Kingdom. And similarly, when that was brought in with the Royal Rumble, there would be stretches where it was just one or two people that could win it. Yeah. Up until that point, one of the joys of the G1 was it was like its own achievement in and of itself. It was like winning the FA Cup and like winning the FA Cup back in the 70s, 80s when there wasn't a guarantee of a big four teams being in the finals all the time. You get your Coventry's v Spurs. You get your Tottenham's v Nottingham Forests. Mm. You wouldn't just get three Man U v Arsenal's and, you know, two Man City v Chelsea's. Yeah. And so on and so on. And and then weirdly, when the roster split happened, that, that helped the Royal Rumble again because yeah. it allowed them to change things up, and so there was there, there was very few repeat winners until the the two rosters went back together essentially. Emerged, yeah, and at yeah. that point, it just became the Roman Reigns show for a very long time, mm. and a lot. And there were a lot more two time, three time. Well, there's only been one three time winner to be fair in Austin, but it was like Cena winning it again, Triple H winning it again, Batista winning it again, Roman Reigns winning it two times, Orton. Uh, Orton, yet Brock Lesnar has now won it twice, and I worry that that is going to be the so so Chono being in and of itself this great G, you know Mister August G one, and even that took place over a an, a similar eleven year period, but it wasn't also coupled with him also dominating the IWGP heavyweight scene. Yeah, there were so many f- more different winners, whereas for the last what ten years it's gone Okada. Tanahashi, Okada, Naito, Omega, Naito, Tanahashi, Okada, Ibushi, Ibushi, you know, 
Sonata was lucky to get one final in there. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we've been prevented from seeing sites such as Evil winning the world, the, the G1. <laughs> yes. I was going to pull back to a point you made slightly earlier. Now, you said, obviously, now the FA Cup aspect of the G1 has gone. Well, it's not, because, but it just means the FA Cup, it sucks in a way that similarly the FA Cup seems to suck now. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. The New Japan Cup, though, is that not something they could like pivot that feeling to? Yes, but that's essentially the EFL Cup of wrestling. It doesn't mean as much. At the, yeah, but maybe maybe over time it gets more prestigious. I don't know. Well, it's only so prestigious you can be if you're going to just get the, the the main event of Dontaku or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, there's winning it to get the Dontaku main event, and there's winning it to get the Dominion main event. And there's also 30 years of lineage with this G1 Climax, whereas there's only, what, 13, 14 years of lineage with the New Japan ah. Cup? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And the whole point of the New Japan Cup is it to allow these weird little upsets along the way. So, and, and how many people, you know, Zach's a two-time New Japan Cup winner. They haven't put the, the IWGP title on him. If you're a two-time G1 Climax winner, you're probably getting the title put on you. Yeah. That these are the same four or five people. <laughs> yes. Where, where's the next one coming from? After Will, because Will is the next one, let's face it. Yeah, and it feels impossible to me that Okada's not winning at least two more of these, so Chono's record will be gone too. And I don't know that Okada needs that record as well. But that's where we are. And given that it's Okada and Osprey, this is not going to be the last of these matches we'll be talking about. No. But like I said, this is my favourite of the ones that we have talked about so far. And I look forward to that Wrestle Kingdom 2024 main event because maybe it will be their equivalent of that Dominion match. Who knows? But the Osprey-a-thon continues after this one, Simon. Within this week... He goes back from Japan to the UK, has a four and three quarter star match with Mike Bailey, and then the next day, what does he take part in, Simon? He takes part in our next episode, which is that is Will Ospreay taking on Ricky Knight Jr. RKJ, another five star debutante in this series, part of that notorious Knight family, a Knight family debutante as well, I suppose for this. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, the stories you could tell. (laughs) But we're not going to. But if people want to get in touch with us about, with stories of the Knight family, or other things of that calibre. Stories. That is just stories, nothing visual, for God's sakes. (laughs) How can they get in touch with you, Simon? They can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the free further G1s that you predict Okada will win. Within the next five years. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, as in the start of anniversary. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. If you want to help us with subscriptions to streaming services such as RevPro, then by all means get on our Patreon at patreon.com slash lmtyspod. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five and three quarter star time. Whatever that means. Until the next time.